0: All right, today's scripture is found in Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Oh, yeah, you're already standing. Never mind. I don't have to say that line. (laughs) There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Is that the music to get off stage? Oh, okay. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would offer and send uh, would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right,
1: Job chapter one. I think one of the things that uh, I'm fascinated by is how storied we are. And what I mean by that is I, I feel like we, we understand our life through the lens of story. Um, so much of our, our points of reference, you know, the things that we find analogies in, all kinds of things, become through the fact that we are story people. I don't know of any, any culture in the world that doesn't have story as part of their, their culture. And I think, uh, especially here in the West, we, we have sort of our favorites, we have, these, we have these things that if I were to start saying certain things, you'd know, you would not only know I'm about to tell you a story, you'd know what kind of story I'm about to tell you. In fact, you might even know the specific story I'm gonna tell you. Like if I said to you a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know I'm about to tell you about what? Star Wars. If I tell you, Uh, once there was a a hobbit who lived in a hole. I think that's the opening line. I'm probably talking about the hobbit, right? If I say, ready for you uh, literature buffs, call me Ishmael, Moby Dick, right? Um, There once was a boy who lived in a cupboard under the stairs. Harry Potter, you horrible pagan people for reading Harry (laughs) Potter. But but if I said things like this, once upon a time, You know I'm about to tell you probably a fairy tale. If I say to you, it was a dark and stormy night. Oh, he's going to get something mysterious, kind of intriguing that we're going to hear about. Job is no different. Look how it opens. There once was a man named Job. Right? There once was this man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Almost immediately, you instinctually know that you're about to be drawn into a human story. You're about to be drawn into somebody's experience, and it's a story of this man named Job that you wonder, what's this about? Who is he, right? Now, here's a man that we know almost nothing about but what we get in these first five verses, right? There's going to be other places in Scripture that refer to this guy, Job. He's a righteous man. He suffered more than anyone. We're going to hear those kinds of things, but we don't really know except what this chapter tells us. It's interesting that Job, in very many ways, uh, uh, works itself out like a play, and you're going to see this. There's almost this back and forth. We'll see next week, but it's a play where the curtain opens, and there's this man, you know, sitting there, standing there. We don't know what he's doing, but there he is, dressed, and we look at him, and he's like, okay, uh, there's something about him. I'm drawn into the middle of his life dropped down i know nothing about his past i really don't know anything about his future other than what we're left to in chapter 42 i don't know i don't know when he lived Okay, so, so most scholars believe that Job is during the time of the patriarchs. And don't get caught up on that word. That literally just means like the, the Old Testament OG folks, right? It's, the, it's, it's, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? That's what we refer when referring to patriarchs. They are, they are the, the, the ones, and they, so they believe, they believe that Job is during that time of probably during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what we don't know, we get no lineage. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't know what clan he's from he's from. We just know there was a man who lived in us whose name was Job. Now, I think there's a purpose for that. Part of what we're we're being conditioned to, if you will, is right from the beginning is to go, well, this is a man that we all can relate to. It's not some tribal thing. It's not some clan thing. It's not not just a Jewish thing. This is something we can all identify. Now, let me give you a little, like, little Bible reading tip. And I'd say this. I was an English major, so, so uh, you, you, I think you sort of attune yourself to these things when you think about literature in general. Or think about a movie. Think about any of these things. That introductions are vital. The introduction to a character, and I don't, I'm not saying he's fictional. I'm saying, but when we get introduced to Job, this is vitally important. When you get introduced to anybody, think about a movie. Think about Indiana Jones. Right? What do you what, what what you learn right up front? He's kind of crazy. He will sacrifice his body for anything, and he loves archaeology. I like it's just these establishing things for you as you see these opening shots in a movie, right? Harry Potter lives in a, you know, under the stairs in a in a, in a closet. You 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 learn something about them. We're gonna learn something about this man. We're gonna we're gonna try to understand and understand that that what, what does he have to do with this story? What you're gonna discover is he is everything. Like this is a very aptly named book, the book of Job, because everything points back to him. The problem that we're about to encounter in this book is all about Job. The, the speeches that all of his friends are gonna make in the next 36 chapters are all about Job. God, when he speaks up, talks to Job. It is the book of Job. So who was he? What do we learn about this man? And so I just want to look at these first five verses today and see what we can learn about this man named Job. All right, let me show you four things. Number one, we're going to learn about his place. It says there was a man from the land in the land of Uz. What is that? (laughs) Well, scholars really don't know. They don't know exactly. They have some good guesses, right? There's a good guess that it's probably east of Israel. Um, It is in what would be known in that day as the land of Edom. And one of the reasons we say that is because in Lamentations chapter 4, we read this, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz." Keep that up there just for a second. Let me, let me just, I want to make a kind of a side comment here. Okay, first of all, notice Edom and Uz are parallel to one another. And this is, by the way, a hint when you start reading all of the Hebrew poetry. And we're going to read a lot of Hebrew poetry over 36 chapters. You're going to notice something. There's a line and there's another line. It's almost always two stanzas. And, and not always, but, but almost always, you get two stanzas and you have the first line and the second line is always some kind of explainer, contrast, somehow related to the first line. Just keep that in mind. It's really helpful. They're not necessarily saying two different things. He's not both from Edom and the land of Us. like these are two different things. He's saying, Edom, Uz is part of Edom, right? So this is, this is how Hebrew poetry is, is uh, working out there in Lamentation. So, so that, that'll be helpful as you walk through now, so we don't know exactly. We think maybe he's part of Eden, but here's what we do know. We know for sure he's not in Israel. We know, we know for sure he's not Jewish. We know that there is no connection that the, that the narrator makes between him and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, any of the patriarchs. There's no connection between Job and any of Israel's history. Most think he's before the conquest. Most think he's before Sinai. He's before the Exodus, right? So it's during this time of the patriarchs, but, 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 but that's all we, we're sure of those things. We, we're sure about what we know is not true of him. And here's what's fascinating about that. The reason I bring that up is because here's a man that as far as we're concerned, as far as God's revelation to him, understands very little about God and yet he trusts him, he worships him and he knows him. Now, now that, that um, is amazing when we consider that we have 66 books of a Bible that tell us exactly who God is, tell us everything we need to know. Right? And here's Job who goes, I don't have any of that. And I worship him. Now, So this is his place, right? Job lives in this land of us. So let's think of a movie. The camera swoops in over this valley, I don't know, and maybe dusty plain in the land of Edom. And and you start to see some homes or tents and the architectural features and the geographic features. And that's the place he lives. The music, I don't know, in the background is kind of majestic and mighty. And this is this land of us. And now the narrator takes us and swoops all the way down. And we go inside the home, perhaps and we go to Job and we don't just get to see Job and what he looks like. Now he's gonna take us into the inner life of Job. And so look what he does. That's what I'm saying. He's, this introduction is all important. Now he's gonna tell us about Job's piety. Look what he says in verse one. He was a man named Job and that man was, look at this, blameless, upright, and one who feared God and turned away from evil. Here we're going to get a glimpse into the most important part of Job, and that's his character. And what do we learn? We learn a few things. Number one, we learn that he's blameless. Now, be careful with this word. When it, when it talks about blameless, when the Bible uses blameless, it uses it in a couple different settings. Sometimes it will talk about a, an animal as blameless. And, and what I mean is it uses the same word. And it's the word you're going to see in sacrificial settings that talk about him, that animal being without spot or blemish, right? But when it's talking about a person, uh, it, ironically, right, it's talking that, that that's a word used for sacrifice, and Job, in some ways, ends up being sort of this living sacrifice. But when it talks about a person, it's talking about somebody with personal integrity. It's not trying to say that Job was sinlessly perfect. Okay? We, we know there's only one man in all of Scripture. In fact, later on, Job is going to admit that he's a sinner. He's going to say, I've sinned. I know I've sinned. I'm not claiming to be perfect. Okay, That's not the, the claim that Job or even the author is making. What it's saying is that Job was genuine. Job, to use the buzzword of our time, was authentic. Right. That is that what you see is what you got. That what Job seemed to be is what Job actually was. If you thought Job was godly, it's Because Job was actually godly. There was no secret sin. Job is not living the life of a hypocrite. Job is 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 his, his inner life matches his outer appearance, and vice versa. If you were in New Testament, we might say he's qualified to be an elder. What's an elder supposed to be? An elder, the very first qualification of an elder, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3, is that they are above reproach. That's the idea. Doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. Boy, I hope not, I'm an elder. Uh, it means there ought to be something where you say, hey, there's nothing to hide, uh, that, that I hope that I'm appearing the way I, I, I am who I appear to be. Listen, the greatest example I can give you is, uh, is, is, many of you know my wife, Michelle, okay? And what I've told people before, I've, I've said this for years, is if you've met Michelle, you've met Michelle. And I mean that. What I mean by this is that she actually is what she appears to be. I know her, but I don't mean Michelle's sinlessly perfect, right? What I mean is that you you interact with her here and I'm with her at home and I see see the inner and outer life of Michelle and I can tell you she is who she appears to be. She really is that nice. She really is that kind. She really is that thoughtful. It's disgusting, right? (laughs) It's ridiculous, right? So, but but there's something about that, right? We want to know that what we're looking at is somebody who, who matches that. Now, listen, you may say, well, that's the narrator's opinion. Here's what's going to happen. God is going to say the same thing about Job two more times. Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. This is God's assessment of Job. You should highlight this. You should circle it in pen. You should put it in neon lights. Here's why. Because you are there is going to be a barrage of 36 chapters that's going to do everything in its power to convince you Job must be hiding something. That there's no way Job is the kind of man that the narrator and the God says he is. There's got to be more. And so if you don't have this settled in your mind, he is exactly what the narrator says he is. He's blameless. But second of all, he's upright. It just means the idea there is just he's, he's straight. He's not veering to the right or left, right? He's, he's not crooked in his dealings. He won't double cross you. If, you're, if you do business with Job, you're gonna get what he says you get. You're gonna get, you know, he's, he's gonna give you, he's gonna deliver on what he promises, He's, he's upright, but then he's fear. It says he feared God and he turned away from evil, feared God, shunned evil. These are two sides of the same coin, right? To fear God and to shun evil, these things must always go together, right? There's some people that think, well, yeah, I love God, but I don't really do anything with my sin. I don't think much about. Well, then that means you are you are a lot like the rest. Of the, so much of America. See, this is not this is not what, what Americans think. Which is which is what ninety eight percent of us would say. I believe in God. Um, what percentage would say that belief actually changes how I live? Fearing God. Let me just again. Let me give you a little. Uh, little uh, mini lesson here. When you see fear God in your Old Testament, you're gonna see it everywhere. Proverbs chapter one, the fear of the Lord is beginning with wisdom. It is all over your Old Testament. It is the Old Testament's way of talking about genuine faith. It's the Old Testament way we might say of talking about salvation. That is the person who really walks with God is somebody who reverences him, fears him, right? And, and, and that has, has the kind of faith that actually alters how they live. So if you said to Job, why do you live the way you live? Because I fear God. The reason I turn away from evil is because I love God. I want to please God. I want to walk with God. This is Job. It says he turns away from evil. That's the idea of repentance. Literally, your Bible, when it ta- says the word repent, it's talking about to turn around, to turn away from that thing. This is what Job does, and it says, the idea there is he's characterized by this. He's characterized by continuous repentance and constant fear of God. That is faith, let's use New Testament words, repentance and faith, all his life. Some of you know Martin Luther, when he, when he nailed the... The 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, he, he says that his very first one was when our Lord and Master commanded us to repent, he meant that all of the life of the Christian would be one of repentance. That's the idea. Job is a habitual repenter. He shuns, he turns the other direction. He moves away from evil because he loves God. So, so what do we learn about Job so far? We haven't learned that he's sinlessly perfect. What we, what we learn is that he's, 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 um, he's a genuine believer. He is a, actually a godly man. He is a man of uncommon righteousness. We might say that. But he's a man with a well-deserved reputation at the narrator. God looks down and says, this is somebody who really is a follower of me. His life is marked by repentance and faith. This is what we learn. Now, okay, let, let's just just look at me for a second. Don't look at your Bibles. Let's assume you didn't know the rest of the story. Let's assume God gave you the, the ability to write the story that would happen. Hey, you get to govern the world what does your world look like? How do you govern this world? Let's say it this way. If Disney were writing the story, what would they say about a man like Job? What would, what would become of him? What, what kind of life should a man like Job expect? What should you expect? Well, you'd probably expect exactly what's about to come. Look at verses 2 and 3. Let's look at his prosperity. They were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Okay, so you get exactly what you think you should get. What is that? Like, well, here's, you get, you, get, you get numbers like, like completeness, right, like, like, like seven and three and ten that, that add up. And these are great numbers in Scripture, by the way. The Scriptures aren't about numerology, but they use numbers sometimes to signify things. So when you get a three, that's a, that's a, that's a number that in many ways has, has a significance. It's idea of completeness. Or seven, whole, perfect, ten, you know, this is, this is exactly the way things should be. What's the message being sent? That, that it, is, it is whole, that it is complete, that, that Job's life has this, um, you know, j- j- everything is sort of exactly as it should be. Um, children. The Bible's gonna say children are a heritage from the Lord and blessed is the man, the woman, the couple whose quiver is full of them. Very different than our culture who looks at children kind of as a burden. And the Bible is going to say they are a sign of God's blessing. And in the ancient Near Eastern world that Job lived, sons especially would have been a sign of God's blessing. Now, don't, don't, don't get this wrong. It's not that God is saying sons are better than daughters. It's that this is the culture that, that it lands in. And they understand that to, to be a son means you carry on the family business and you carry on the family name and you add to the family wealth. In fact, this is such a big deal to have sons that in the book of Ruth, which is all about women. Ruth and Naomi, if you know the story right they're, they're in Moab, they're outside of the promised land. They make their way back to Israel uh, because their husbands have died. Ruth says, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay with you, Naomi. She is, uh, Naomi is, a, is Jewish, Ruth is an outsider, but it turns out that Ruth is actually the greater God fear. And in, in, in God's province, she gets introduced to Boaz, they get married, they start having sons. The end of the story is you realize she's, she's in the line of Jesus, but 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 what happens in chapter four of Ruth is when all this reversal of fortune, they were destitute and now they're being cared for. And all because of Ruth. And Naomi's friends say to Naomi, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. Like that would be perfect. Ruth is better than that. See, I had three daughters. You add three plus, ten, plus seven, you get 10. And again, you've got a really good number. In other words, In other words, Job's life is overflowing with relational abundance, okay? But the second thing you learn is that he's also financially ridiculously wealthy. Do you see what it says? See all this stuff? 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. Okay, this is, again, this is an Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern way of talking about fabulous wealth right? The, the, he is, he is uh, you know, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, whoever, he, you know, he, crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He's got everything. The guy is overflowing. He's got this large uh, corporation with all these employees and a huge payroll. I mean, this guy is, is, is rolling in it, right? He, um, he, the, his family lives in houses, not tents, we'll find out. So he is a very wealthy man. He's so important that the narrator is gonna say he's the greatest of all the people in the East. He has a reputation. He's got power, if you will, all this stuff. Now, let me go back. Isn't that exactly what you expect when you see the kind of introduction from verse one? That Job is blameless and upright and and fears God and turns away from evil, that is precisely the way intuitively we feel like it should go. Good people become great people in a perfect world. Great people should be good people. And there is something terribly wrong in a world where the opposite is often true, where the wicked are the ones who prosper and the righteous are the ones who suffer, suffer. But so far, this story lines up with all of our expectations. So far, it looks an awful lot like the prosperity gospel. Job is great because Job is good. Greatness is the natural consequence of goodness. And if it isn't, it should be. Do you feel that? I feel this. That's the way life should go. So tempting. So Job's, his place, his piety, his prosperity. But then lastly, look at verses four and five. Look at Job's parenting. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be in that, that, that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job is a great father. Now again, again, very different when you see somebody uber successful like this, you know, usually you'll hear something about how, yeah, you know, they're, they're really financially successful and well off, but boy, they neglected their children. Not Job. Job doesn't sacrifice his, all, his family on the altar of success. Job doesn't only care for them financially. Job desperately cares for them spiritually, the greatest passion, we might say, of his life, or maybe say it this way, the greatest anxiety of his life is that, is that they would be saved. So if you look into Job's heart as a father, what you don't find is this, what I want is simply kids who will be successful, will be materially prosperous, you know, make it into pro sports. I I, I can look at them and the whole world will brag at them and say they're such wonderful, successful children. He says, my greatest, deepest longing is that my kids, in their hearts, follow after God I, I'm not satisfied with the externals of that this is the kind of father he was and what happens well look look what happens apparently the kids loved each other his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house each one in his day and they'd send and invite their three sisters they like hanging out don't read into this by the way there's there's no debauchery going on here there's no immorality going on here this is probably just innocent family fun and they liked, each, they liked each other so much they didn't even invite Mr. and Mrs. Job, right? Moms and dads, like in some ways, isn't this exactly what you hope? If you have more than one kid, don't you long for them to just love each other, even if it means you're not invited, right? So they're probably, you know, the kids are partying and have a good time and barbecuing and all these things. And Job and Mrs. Job are, you know, laying in bed watching Netflix, and, but just deeply satisfied that our kids love each other, right? That's a satisfying thing to think about, right? So this is what's happening. These kids, these kids apparently enjoy one another. They would send and do like birthday parties. That's probably what it means when it says each on his day. This is probably their, their birthdays. They're coming. They're doing these nice family birthdays. And yet, Job feels anxiety. Look at verse five. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. Okay, so so. Everybody, I need you to show up. And it says, look at this, early in the morning, there, there, is, a, there is a sacred ceremony that we're all going to go through, right? I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, you're, you're gonna come. We're gonna become ritually pure before God. And then what does he do? He offers up a burnt offering before God. Now, now I know that means nothing to you. Let me, let me explain to you a burnt offering. This is a lavish lavish offering. Okay. Just, just listen now. This is Job going to those herds and flocks and whatever, grabbing out of that herd, the choicest animal. Okay. The best of the best, the one without spot or wrinkle or blemish and taking them and, and slaughtering them and then taking the entire animal, not there's some nice filet inside of there and some ground beef and there's some choice sirloin. He takes the entire thing, sets it on the altar and burns the entire thing. Every bit of it becomes ashes. And he does it 10 times. Now, I bet you're like, okay, whatever. We don't feel that, do we? What if God said to you, what's the choicest thing you have in your home? Is it a diamond ring? Is it your apple stock? What's the thing? And said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and burn it up. I want you to throw it into the ocean and never see it again. you start to feel what, I'm, what, what they're feeling right now? Like this, this is really, really valuable. Now here, here's what happened. If God said that to you, I can almost promise you, I would do this too. We'd be thinking, wait a second. There's a lot I could do. A lot of good I could do in the world with that. Do you know how many families you could feed with a bull? You could feed a village, right? You could feed tribes of people. You could feed for, for, for days. And God says, burn it. Wait, wait, do you know what I could do with this money? Do you know I could do with this apple stock? Do you know I could do? See, see, isn't this precisely when Jesus is sitting there reclining at table, and the woman walks up to him, and breaks the vial of alabaster, which is the Bible even tells us it's a very expensive oil. This is like her retirement. And she breaks it and spills it on his feet. And one of, the, one of the gospels records, why are you letting her do this? This is Judas Iscariot talking. Why are you letting her do this? It's so wasteful. We could feed the poor. That is bad stewardship, Jesus. You know what good stewardship is? Good stewardship is doing whatever the master tells you to do and leaving the consequences and results up to him. That's good stewardship. It's not what you and I think. You see what Job does? He goes and grabs 10 really, really valuable animals out of his herds and just burns them. He does it 10 times, right? So, so now what's happening? Job, Job looks and says, "Okay, so so w- 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 what why why do I do all this?" He says, "Well, perhaps they've cursed God in their hearts." So Job grabs them and says, "I'm mean, going okay, guys come with me to this little ceremony we're going to do and one by one he slaughters an animal and says, "Okay, Eli, this is for you." And Malachi, this is for you." And Esther, this is for you. I'm using all Old Testament names. Okay, so Declan, this is for you. And Bennett and Ashley and whatever, right? You get the point. These these are for you. This bull is dying in your place. This bull is getting what your sin deserves. Why? Because maybe they curse God in their hearts. See See what Job wants more than anything? I want to make sure that the outside and inside, maybe maybe there's some unatoned for sin in my kid's life. So here's what Job does. Job comes and stands as the high priest of his home and he offers these sacrifices one at a time because maybe, maybe there's something going on in their hearts. What does it mean to curse God? It literally means you want God dead. Our generation has cursed God, right? Right? But, 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 but it's this idea that I don't, want, I don't want to be subject to your rules. I don't want to be governed by you. I, I, I want to operate the way I want to operate. I can run this world better. I can run my life better. That's what it means to curse God in your heart. So Job stands in the gap. He acts like high priest and he offers those because he knows by nature that we do not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. And the only thing that will cover that is sacrifice in our place for our sins. That's what Job does. I'm going to do this for my children. Now, now why, why would the narrator go through all of this trouble to give us all this detail about Job and to say plainly, he did this continually? I'm not just giving you a snapshot, a day in the life of Job, I'm telling you this is how, this is what Job was characterized by. I'm explaining to you this is his life. Why does he open like this? So that one message will be loud and clear as we unpack the next 36 chapters and all the way to the end, is that Job's suffering is not the consequence of Job's sin. Job's suffering is not the result of Job's sin. This is massively important that you remember this. And I think that's, there's sort of two parts to this. There's a really encouraging part to this. Because look, is it possible that you suffer because of your sin? For sure. For sure it is. Is that the way that the world always works? If you are observant at all, you have to say, no. The righteous suffer. And wicked people prosper. And there is such a thing. Hear me. There's such a thing as righteous suffering. In this world, you will have trouble. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. There is such a thing as righteous suffering and wicked prospering. That ought to comfort some of you deeply. Because some of you not only are suffering, but you live under the guilt and the weight of, my suffering must be because of my sin. Now, look, I... I, I can't speak into your life. I can say you can examine yourself. Watch Job. Job will never give up. He'll never let them gain a foothold, even gain an inch. He's gonna, he's gonna demand, I'm innocent. I'm, I am who the narrator and who God say I am. And some of you need to know this because on top of your suffering is the depression, the anxiety that there must be something I've done. And that's not always true. Sometimes righteous people suffer and suffer deeply. And you don't have to add to that suffering by feeling the anxiety that sometimes I've blown it, right? Aren't we so, isn't this exactly where your mind goes? I get a flat on the highway. Oh, what have I done, God? I've sinned against you. We just assume that's how the world works but the righteous suffer. But hear me, we ought to be really thankful that we don't live in the world that we would create. We don't live in the Disney version where where good people are great people and great people are only good people. Because if we did, we're all lost. If there's no such thing as innocent suffering, if there's no such thing as a righteous sufferer, then you and I would perish in our sins. 1 Peter, Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The only innocent one, the only perfectly righteous one that ever lived. And because of that, right? Because because I'm not sinless, because I have sinned, because I fall short of the glory of God, it is because there was a righteous sufferer that I can be made righteous. And we ought to thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We we, we thank you that we get to hear uh, and see life through the lens of Job we're about to plunge ourselves into um, the tragedy that befalls him. But God, how appropriate it is before we start that, before uh, we face tragedy of our own, that we understand that it is not always the result of our sin. That there is such a thing as righteous suffering. Lord, I, I pray there are, there are innocent people in this room there are righteous people in this room who have they have not sinlessly perfect but they are people of integrity they're people whose inside matches their outside they are who they appear to be and they're still suffering disease and sickness financial devastation businesses that have crumbled, relationships that have crumbled. But God, I I thank you that you are not acquainted with our grief, that you have carried our sorrows, and that more than any other human being, more even than Job, you know what it means. Not just in theory, but by experience, for the righteous to suffer. And I thank you because of that, we can be brought to God. You suffered in our place for our sin, the sin that would separate us. And so we praise you. We praise you, Jesus, that you were the sacrifice that was burnt on the altar for us, consumed by the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to be. And God, I pray that you'd comfort people in this room. I pray, Lord, that they would not have to, while they suffer under the weight of the things they're going through, also feel the anxiety that somehow I deserve this. God, I know I'm not speaking about everyone, but there are people here I am sure of whose suffering cannot be traced to any sin. And so help them. But God, I also pray for those that are here today that unlike Job, they they have not lived a life of repentance and the fear of God. They have not turned from their sin and turned in faith to Jesus in such a way that it has actually impacted how they live. It changes the kinds of decisions they make. It causes them to pause. It, 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 it helps them run away from sin. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room that has not put their faith in Jesus, that today that might be the, 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 the thing that happens. They would turn from sin, especially the sin of believing that somehow they could make their self-righteous before God without the cross. And so they'd run to Jesus, run to the cross, run to the covering that he provides. And they would find a righteousness that is not of their own, the righteousness that comes by faith. Do that today, we
0: pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.